When I was 19 years old, I was thrust into, at that time in my life, the most ethnically diverse experience that I had ever had. Having just graduated boot camp, I got stationed on a 180-foot buoy tender out of Seattle, Washington. There's a crew of 56 people all together, made up of 53 men and women, 53 men, three women, spanning the ages of 18 to 45. Uh, there are Latinos, Asians, African-Americans, Pacific Island, well, one Pacific Islander, um, Anglos from the Pacific Northwest, California, the Deep South, and the Northeast. All of those are very diverse <laughs> types of people. Each of us had specific duties and tasks and specialties on board, which kept us kind of unified professionally. Um, our, our social and ethic, um, ethnic backgrounds didn't really come into play. Like, like, it doesn't matter where you're from or what your culture is if you're doing search and rescue or doing maintenance on a diesel engine or painting a deck, right? Like, everybody does that pretty much the same. But one of the ways our diversity came out, one of the ways it always comes out, is around the dinner table, meal times. And we had three cooks on board our ship who had the unenviable task of trying to please 56 people from all kinds of different walks of life and different backgrounds, all while trying to stay on a budget and trying to buy the right kinds of food that could last for 30-day deployments. The worst types of cooks just basically fried everything and then they put allspice on everything. And I'm not talking about allspice, the spice called allspice. I'm talking about like all the spices every time everything fried. Yeah, those, those were the worst. Um, their outlook was, you get what you get, you don't throw a fit, which pretty much works fine on four-year-olds most of the time, but it doesn't work on 56 adults who have opinions, strong opinions about what food should be like. So what was to be done? Well, oftentimes the cooks would try, you know, they would try and change it up. They would try different types of cuisine. They go like, well, there's a, a couple Asian people on our boat, so like, let's try using this generic cookbook to make some stuff, right? We'll make fried rice, right? Because everybody likes that. Or, you know, they'll just, they'll just try and, they tried, they tried. But trying isn't always enough. But there's one cook, Tommy Franz, who had a better idea. Without promising he could, or would, he had us write down our requests. Grits, collard greens, salmon, lobster, gumbo, udon noodles, fried chicken. These are the types of things that people would request from their home cooking mental cookbooks. And he realized quickly that while he could try and make these requests come to life, his version of collard greens was never going to match up to Curtis's grandma's collard greens, right? And his gumbo was not going to pass muster with Danny Devereaux from Louisiana. Just was never going to cut it. So he invited people, whoever was interested from the crew, to give him their recipes and to give him tips. How can I make your thing really come to life? Would you be willing to take some time on your liberty to help me understand how to make this better? Tommy Franz, food specialist, food specialist uh, second class, used listening, creativity, and humility to empower people who felt unheard so that they could be part of the solution to this perceived problem. And we were all better for it, like the food was a lot better after that. Now, in our passage this evening, the early church begins to grow, both in numbers and in diversity. 
And as we watch the story unfold, I think we can learn a lot about how Jesus wants us to love one another, especially in our differences. So if you're able, I invite you to stand as we read Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now at this time, the disciples were increasing in number, and a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenist Jews against the native Hebrews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable in God's eyes for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, the statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas. Nicholas, who was a proselyte from Antioch. And these uh, brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Lord, we thank you once again for helping us uh, engage in the story of your church, recognizing that this is Um, The story of of you, Jesus, moving among your people, drawing people to yourself. We thank you for preserving this word, and we thank you that it still matters. Help us to hear your voice to us today about what this means for us. Help us to have a greater appreciation of who you are and how you've made us to be a community. Amen. You may be seated. It seems to be a general truth that with growth in pretty much anything, there's resistance. Take the human body. If you just leave yourself alone, right, right, we kind of get like we entropy, we we get flabby and stuff. Uh, So we try at various levels to stay fit, right? Like I see a lot of like fitness trackers and you're watching your steps, you keep moving, maybe you exercise. But if you've ever tried to train your body, you know that there's resistance. There's mental resistance, like exercise is mentally hard. You have to choose to get up every day or go in the evening or whatever it is you do your exercise. And you know that there's lots of ways that your mind says, ah, just take a day off or take a week off. Pretty soon it's a month off and you're back to square one. There's physical resistance. Exercise makes us sore. Wilson's chopped wood all day yesterday, and Nathaniel is sore. Exercise makes us sore. There's social resistance, right? There's um, our schedules. There's demands from uh, family and friends, work associates. It is a sacrifice to carve out time to exercise, right? So there's resistance when we want to grow. And in a similar way, the church experiences resistance when it grows. In Acts, we see the church meeting with resistance from the powers, right? There's social powers, like the religious elite, threatened by the growing Jesus movement. And they use their power to threaten and to punish and to arrest and beat down the church. 
There are spiritual powers working against this church. Um, uh, These powers are in the story of Ananias and Sapphira, which we looked at in Acts chapter 5. And the evil one tempted them, entered into them, and, and warped their hearts so that they felt they had to lie. And he was trying to corrupt the church from the inside out. And in our text this evening, we see resistance from social realities. You have to appreciate that the first 12 apostles, these, these 12 apostles were all Jewish people from the region of Palestine, this greater region uh, of Palestine. And many people from this region were trilingual. So they spoke Aramaic on a day-to-day level, uh, and their language of worship, so when they gathered for prayer and their liturgical services and, and uh, the, the sayings of, uh, of, of their, their rabbis and things, the, the, that was all done in Hebrew, And then there was the the language of trade. And so if they went to the market, sometimes they would have to navigate in Greek. Some were better than others at Greek. Uh, The Sadducees uh, were probably likely very fluent in Greek, whereas the average 12 apostles probably had a mixed bag of Greek, but they had enough to get by. Three main languages, but Aramaic was probably their normal uh, lingua franca of every day, right? So um, as the gospel spread more and more Jews from the diaspora, so outside of Palestine, places like Turkey and Greece and uh, North Africa, they begin to come and to become part of the Jesus way in the Jerusalem area. So they're coming from outside. And these people were religiously, maybe even some of them ethnically, Hebrew, Jewish. But they lived in what we call uh, Hellenized regions of the world. I'll remind you that Helen is the Greek word for Greek. So Hellenized is Greekized. And that doesn't just mean that they spoke the Greek language, but that they were living in the Greek culture. That is, they spoke Greek as their primary language, and they were more steeped in Greek ways of living than in Jewish ways of living like you might if you were in Jerusalem. So they participated in things like Greek festivals and the games of the gymnasium. They were familiar with the Greek diet. And while they probably remained kosher because prior to becoming Christians, they were Jewish, they still had much, a much wider palette of food options to them. They were more open in their uh, forms of, uh, of food, music, theater, and art. And, and to the Jewish Hebrew-speaking people of Palestine, the Hellenized Jews of the diaspora were culturally very different. As the church grew, it gained members from the Hebrew Jewish community of Palestine and the Hellenized Jewish community of the diaspora. And you can see this clash of cultures coming together under the banner of Jesus. In the story we're looking at, a conflict emerges about how the widows among this community were being cared for. From the earliest Jewish ethical writings in the Old Testament, we see care for widows and orphans and immigrants as of the utmost importance. The Jesus movement continued this emphasis, and as we've read in the previous passages of Acts, uh, we see how the church pulled its resources together to care for the people in need who were part of the church movement. 
Now, we don't know much about the process of how this happened, but you can imagine that a community, as it continued to grow, the administration of these resources to people like widows and orphans and whoever had need, that administration would become more complex and it too would have to get more sophisticated. And in fact, if you think about, if you've been part of letter treats for a while, we just had our 10th anniversary, uh, we started off with me and volunteers and now we have a multi-staff we have a volunteer coordinator position why because it's it's gloriously more complex than it used to be and that's what happens when you begin to grow and multiply and that's a good thing the system of care for widows gets strained and a complaint arises from the hellenized christians And it seemed that their widows were being neglected while the Hebrew widows were receiving the benefits. Now, we don't know exactly what the details of the situation were. There is almost no evidence that there was discrimination outright against the Hellenized widows. But at the same time, the reality is that they were somehow slipping through the cracks of the system. Part of it may just have been a function of logistics. The Hebrew widows were from the Palestine area. They spoke fluent Aramaic. They they know the routine. They know where to go uh, for services. They know how the system in Jerusalem works. Like They just know it like the back of their hand. The Hellenized widows, on the other hand, were more fluent in Greek than Aramaic. They likely spent most of their life outside of Palestine. And now at their more fragile age... Okay... Have you ever, sorry for people over 70, um, have you ever seen like a grandparent try and figure out their new iPhone that they just got, right? Like, like there's just stuff that it's harder to pick up when you get older. And I know I'm, I'm almost there with some of the kids, the, the doodads that they're looking at. I'm like, how do you navigate? How did you? They had to show me the other day on the Apple TV how to get the screensaver. I didn't know you could just move it like that with a swipe. Anyway. Imagine these older women are coming in. Maybe they came with the husband. The husband dies and now it's like, What do I do? How do I navigate this world? In the years I've lived here and volunteered with the local schools and the food bank, as a volunteer, I've seen this firsthand. People come from out of town, they move to town, their kid might start going to Parkview where I volunteer, and they don't know the system. And they don't know the food bank system. And so, you know, Opportunity Council, right? That's like the hub. That's one of the great places that you you take people to. And like, here are all these great services, right? In many towns, though, going to the food bank can be a dehumanizing and even dangerous experience, especially for a single mother or for for someone uh, who's at an at-risk, you know, part of the population, And when people move to Bellingham, they don't realize how great a food bank we have. And sometimes my role has literally been to drive people to the food bank when it's not food bank hours, right? So I go in and I just say, I'm going to bring someone in. And Mike Cohen and those guys are just great about, yeah, come on in. And you give them a back room tour and you see how it's laid out like a supermarket. Like that's not always the normal food bank experience. And then it, it kind of lowers a barrier so that they feel more comfortable coming when it is the regular hours. See what I'm saying? I remember another story where a woman moved here from the southeast, you know, very dry climate, and so she goes to the food bank on the bus, and she has these paper bags, and she gets on the bus, and then after she gets off the bus, she has another half mile to walk to her home, and she told me in tears how it was raining, and all of her food busted out of the bag. 
Like, you wouldn't think about that if you lived in the southeast because it hardly ever rains, right? Like, but, like, we don't use paper bags very often um, when we're walking long distances in the rain in the northwest. It's just a matter of logistics when you're in a new environment. The outsider is always at a disadvantage to learn the rules of the system in a new place. And that's likely part of what's going on here in Acts 6. Regardless of the reason, the feeling, the feeling was that the Hellenized widows were struggling while the Hebrew widows were doing fine. Now, what happens next? What happens next is a timeless example of how to wisely care for each other. The first thing to notice is that the church chose to work on the issue rather than these two options. Rather than A, letting it fester and doing nothing, and rather than B, splitting up over it. There are times... And these are regrettable times, but there are times when it's right for the church to maybe part ways with factions, but only in the extremely rare instances that there's like grievous doctrinal error or open, unrepentant sin in one of its many forms. But in this scene, like there's no moral lapse, there's no false teaching, there's no denial of, of obedience or loyalty to Jesus and his people, but there is a problem There's hard feelings. Bridging cultures is always more difficult than separating. And at a moment like this, the church could have easily said, because we see it happen all the time, hey, let's part ways. You guys be first Hellenist church of Jerusalem, and we'll be first Hebrew-speaking church of Jerusalem, and we'll be so safe in our little bubbles, eating the kind of food we like, and you guys can eat the kind of food you like, and we'll probably even grow because everybody likes to be like them, so we'll attract the Hebrew Aramaic speakers, and you'll attract those Hellenized Greek speakers, and we'll just thrive, and maybe we'll do a potluck once a year. But the gospel is ever calling us to break down any wall that is not an ethical wall or not a moral wall, that's not a sin wall, right? The gospel doesn't call us to less holiness. It calls us to see that true holiness is loving our neighbor as ourself. So they choose to do the hard work of staying together rather than creating factions. And in their staying together, they are not downplaying diversity. There's no such thing as colorblindness or Hellenist blindness or culture blindness in this church setting. That doesn't work when we're in Christ. Notice that their differences are not ethical. They're not moral. To to stay together does not require the church to acquiesce to some sort of sin or to compromise in any way obedience to Jesus. They are doing this hard work because they're mandated by Jesus to do it. So the first thing the apostles do is they call the community together, right? The temptation of every leader is to drop what you're doing and to fix the problem. I feel this, if you're in any kind of leadership, even in your home, you probably feel this too. Nobody likes tension in the camp. Those of you who tend to be people pleasers might understand that temptation. And the apostles could have told the group, hey, I hear there's a problem, we're going to take care of it, just be patient, we'll find a solution. But they don't say that. And here's why that is so important. 
First, they recognize that their primary calling is not administration, but the ministry of the word and the ministry of prayer. There are lots of people, I'm sure, in that early church who could figure out a better distribution system, but there are only 12 apostles. In a similar way, each of us is called to a vocation. Uh, There are lots of ways in a church like this one or any church that we can serve in ways that aren't directly in line with our vocation. So don't get me wrong there, like, uh, where's Wasserman? He's probably downstairs serving in children. Oh, yeah, he's down serving in children's ministry. Sometimes you see Wasserman up in the the projection. I mean, Doc Wasserman is a PhD in philosophy, is the chair of philosophy at Western, but, but he... You know, he does other stuff, right? Or like Emily Frazier is a nurse practitioner and she leads worship, you know, a worship team. And she, I look out in here, I see grossly overqualified people doing different things in the church. So we all serve outside of our vocation, don't we? But it would be out of balance, I would think, if you had a Tommy Lingbloom who's a teacher going on an admin track, start neglecting his vocation to do some other task that other people could do. I've been, you'll spy me sometimes uh, taking the trash out, right? Or, hey, I'll unclog a toilet. Like sometimes things have to get done here at the church that just like, they got to get done, right? But But if I neglected the ministry of the word and sacrament so I could get the building fixed up, or maybe I should still hang that AED, but anyway, if, if, if I could just like be on a hundred boards, you know how many people, like how many board invitations you get? Well, a lot of you know. Um, everybody wants you to be on their board. Like if I was on all the boards that I get asked to do in the city, I wouldn't have time to do any of this. And there's an attractiveness to that. Oh, I couldn't, I couldn't study, which is tedious and hard. I couldn't do the pastoral work because I was so busy on these boards. Aren't I important? That would be dereliction of duty. So the apostles recognized that even if they could fix the problem, the church would eventually die because of the lack of the ministry of word and prayer. The second reason it's important that the apostles didn't try and fix the problem is that they would stunt the maturity of the church. In fact, I believe if they had just solved every problem, or if we would solve every problem, that it would set the church backward, causing it to be more dependent on the leadership. By the way, the leadership of the privileged majority who happened to be from the Hebrew camp, that's the apostles, at the expense of the marginalized, Hellenized minority. So what follows are some principles that we would do well to follow. And you know, I usually don't like just, I don't usually don't preach principles. But like when they're there, I'm going to preach principles. Um, There's good news in them too. So like, check this out. The first principle is so simple and it is yet so rarely practiced. Here it is. They listen. (laughs) They listen. Rather than jumping to a fix, they listen to the problem. They hear the very real grievance of the Hellenized community. Whatever the reason for the the oversight of the Hellenized widows, the situation is raw. Whether it was malevolent or accidental, nobody meant any harm, it doesn't matter. Those Hebrew widows, or Hellenized widows, and the Hellenized community feel slighted. And that's a real feeling. It feels bad to be excluded. And when you've got people with hurt feelings, that tension is real. 
No matter what you think about the situation, whether you think you're right and they're wrong, know that the person with the grievance feels deeply about their position. You don't have to agree, but the wise, loving thing to do is to give the dignity of really listening. And in most cases, listening will inform you to wise next steps. In this case, the apostles realized that they may not be the best to equip, uh, the best ones equipped to fix the problem. Um, after all, they themselves, the apostles, are the people in power. They're from the Hebrew camp. So they invite the congregation to put forward seven people who are of the Hellenized camp. And they choose these, these guys, Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas. Nicholas was a proselyte from Antioch. That means he was a Gentile who had converted to Judaism at some point in his life and then converted to Christianity. In this very important step in the right direction, all of these seven are chosen who have Greek origin. They're from the Hellenist camp. But it is a step of exponentially greater magnitude to empower that minority group. So again, this is not an issue of, of empowering a group that is trying to deviate from the gospel. This is not a group who says, you know, I want to add cat worship into the liturgy and we feel neglected because we don't have any cat worship on Sundays. And the apostles would not be wise to allow a secret council or a special council of cat worshipers to add some feline flair to their worship gatherings. That wouldn't be a step of wisdom on the apostles' part. No, this, this is an issue of wisdom and humanization and e equity. Th this is the gospel of a Lord who emptied himself of authority and power so that others might live. You see that? Jesus is our example, right? And if the king of the universe is one who leads by emptying himself, then maybe we should do that too. Jesus' followers who find themselves in majority positions of privilege must not just give lip service to the minority voice. They must find ways to empower these people uh, of the minority group in ministry, right? So in this case, the seven Hellenists are charged with administering support to the widows. How empowering, right? Like who better to know how to fix the problem than the people from the community for, who are suffering from the problem? They actually might know what it feels like. They probably know the widows that are suffering firsthand. It might even be some of, you know, their aunties or something like that. Let me recap what we've seen thus far. Listening. Empowering the minority. Uh, that is not just a cop-out, by the way. That is not just, hey, that's your problem, Hellenists. Go ahead and fix it yourself. It is a handing over of official power with the support and blessing of the whole community. They laid hands on these seven. They blessed them. They publicly recognized their authority and position before the congregation and before the Lord Jesus. That's a much different thing than saying, um, you know, just figure it out yourself. Sounds like you have a problem. I bless you in figuring it out. In our case, it might be 
giving more voice to women, right, in positions of, uh, of leadership. It might, it might be um, uh, not just be having our older kids in the service, like, like you are right now, uh, as spectators, but giving them an increased amount of voice in how they participate, right? And we've done some of that, right? We invited them to serve. We've got Finley and, uh, and Zoe up there serving in projection right now. We've got some kids serving. I think Keely's downstairs, right? Um, down with the Children's Church right now. Many of our students are doing this sort of ministry. Uh, during the mission trip uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had these daily debriefs. And I was excited that so many of our, our young people, uh, even ele- elementary age kids, were, were free to, to share about their joys and, and fears and frustrations and goofy things that happened. It was just, is this a really healthy thing that took place? And so whether the divide is over gender or age or culture, ethnicity or social standing or some other human construct, we need to be asking how we can give voice and power away so that people increasingly feel like they're part of the movement. Now, I opened with an illustration about how a cook on our ship empowered us to bridge cultural divides over, the, over food. Uh, and I want to suggest that what Acts 6 models for us is something quite a bit deeper. The congregation in Acts chapter 6 doesn't just pick minorities and put them into positions of power. In other words, Stephen, Philip, and the others aren't chosen merely because they are Hellenists. That would be basically, in effect, two negatives. That would be paternalistic, first of all, just to say, like, Hey, uh, we need some minorities, so we're just going to pick you guys because you're minorities. It would be extremely dehumanizing. Like it would be saying, you don't really have any value except for the fact that you're other. No, the instructions were to choose seven people from among the congregation who were of good reputation, full of the Spirit, and full also modifies wisdom. So full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. Now, why is that important? Why is it important? Couldn't just anyone kind of work on the problem? Why did they have to be full of the Spirit and full of wisdom and of good reputation? Well, it's important because the gospel witness goes out in three main avenues. It goes out through the ministry of the Word, that is, through the teaching and preaching of the Word. It goes out through the ministry of prayer, right? Information, the preaching and teaching of the Word, information alone does not transform hearts and minds. It is the work of the Spirit in concert with the prayers of the people that transform hearts and minds, right? So we've got the ministry of the Word and ministry of prayer. But third, and just as importantly, the gospel is embodied in the way the community cares for one another. You can talk about the gospel all you want through teaching and, and prayer. You can have warm fuzzies from the Spirit saying, ooh, I believe this is real, I got faith. But if you go too long and you don't actually see it in the community, it's not sticky. It doesn't work. It wouldn't work for me. Probably wouldn't work for you. In fact, a lot of us came into a community like this, not first and foremost because we held certain beliefs, but because we were loved. And because we have opportunity here to love people. 
We expect those who preach the word of God and who administer the sacrament to have certain, a certain level of spiritual maturity. Now, I didn't say just maturity in general, otherwise I couldn't do this job, but just spiritual maturity and to be of good reputation, right? In this passage, the apostles add dignity to all those who serve in the body of Christ. So it's, it's not just pastors and staff people and lead team members who are to be of good reputation and full of the spirit and wisdom. It is everybody who's part of the church, who, who, who works in Christ's name, who serves in Christ's name. Like you might be the best worship leader in the world, but if you are known in the world, like outside the walls of the church as a mean person, you'll tarnish the reputation of the gospel community. Or you might be the best administrator of distributing the church's resources or organizing events, but if you have a bad reputation as being greedy or harsh, you'll undercut the witness of the gospel. So whether we're preaching sermons or leading worship or serving on staff or prepping a meal or locking up the building after the church service on Sunday, our character matters. Our connection to Jesus matters. Uh, For the witness of the gospel in the world, it all matters. Now, here's the reality. As human beings, man, let your guard down a minute. We are just profoundly insecure people. Profoundly insecure. And that is a strange reality when you consider that every single one of us was made in God's image. You are glorious. Uh, Turn to your neighbor on either side and say, you are glorious because God. Oh, yeah. You're glorious, Leslie, because God. Does anyone just want to bust out Macklemore right now, a little glorious? Okay, anyway, uh, probably not. In a fallen world where sin has infected our perspective and distorted our glory, almost every one of us assumes that we are unworthy And sometimes we assume that everyone else in our friendship groups or our circles that we roll in are actually closer together than we are, that somehow we're on the outside looking in. And we tend to think that other people are more put together, more secure, and more confident than we are. And and here's where the gospel of Jesus is an answer to that. The, The gospel of Jesus brings us back into the family of God. It frees us from this curse of shame and isolation, and it does this through the ministry of word and prayer and the care of the community. Yes, part of the gospel, part of the gospel is that Jesus saves us from sin and shame and death, and amen to that. But don't forget that the gospel also includes the important reality that he saves us for things as well. He doesn't just save us from things, but he saves us for thriving in community called the church. The community of Jesus is where we learn to live into our glory. Lord, help us to live into our glory. And help us, Lord, to overcome in the power of your spirit 
the insecurity and anger and shame and fear that would prevent us from helping other people live into their glory. Lord, forgive us where we have kept uh, minority groups down out of our own fear and insecurity. Thank you for this amazing story in Acts 6. It shows us some ways that we can listen better and release our grip on power and empower others to thrive and to come to know their glory. Lord, as we transition into a time of healing prayer, I pray that you would do a healing work in each of us, unbinding us from shackles of shame and doubt. And we invite you to enter into us, Lord, taking the throne that's rightfully yours. Amen.